Do you ever wonder how great leaders in the community make things happen? When they encounter new unexpected challenges like a pandemic, how do they continue to successfully make an impact? Welcome to That Sounds Terrific, the podcast that connects you with these amazing people. Get insights on what they do to meet their goals. Find out how you can help them in their mission and learn their methods so you can be more successful at what you do. Welcome to That Sounds Terrific with host Nick Koziel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of That Sounds Terrific. Uh, joining me today is Dr. Anna Rogers, and I'm your host, Nick Koziel. And I would love to give um, Dr. Rogers the opportunity to kind of introduce herself and tell us all the wonderful things that she's doing, because it's quite a list. And uh, she was so nice to offer to introduce all the things that she's doing. So welcome to the show, Dr. Rogers. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm happy to be here. And uh, yes, I am an eclectic person. I will start out by saying I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, so I'm a little bit of everything. Uh, my official title at SUNY Empire State College is Associate Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies, but I'm also the coordinator of the Global Indigenous Knowledge Program at the college. Besides that, I wear an external hat that is uh, called Sustainable Progress and Equality Collective, which is directly connected to a program I developed inside of Empire State College called the Buffalo Project. So we'll be talking about that probably today. I'm also uh, have a hat in technology. So um, I am part of the SUNY system related to te technological development. So I'm a fellow focusing on open educational resources, development and of, of online digital engagement. That's a lot of stuff going on in there, and, and I'm, I'm happy that we're going to unpack a lot of it today, or try to anyway. Um, but I would like to start with you and kind of, you, you said it there, you know, you didn't know what you wanted to be when you grow up, you know, grew up. How does that, how did everything kind of play out? Can you talk a little bit about your career and kind of how you kind of got where you are? Sure. So um, I always knew when I was young that I never wanted to be pigeonholed into a particular anything. Uh, if you would meet me in person, I don't like labels of any type. I don't personally like labels. Uh, and it's mainly because I'm a very multiracial person. So if you would know my background, I'm literally 12 different things. I speak four languages. Uh, my family is made up of people from all over. Uh, I'm actually originally from Los Angeles. So I have cousins who speak Japanese. I have cousins who speak different languages. And that's because it's all part of my uncles are from Japan and things like that. Mm -hmm. So culture has always been a big, huge part of me from the time that I was born. Um, being around people that were from different cultures mattered. And so from very young age, I knew that I wanted to be a professor. That's all I wanted to be from the age of six. Um, I knew that I wanted to be an archaeologist, which I actually have my doctorate in archaeology as well. But I also knew that I wanted to do lots of things. So um, my trajectory for my career, I changed majors as a bachelor student like 10 times uh, <laughs> because I, I wanted to do everything. I was one of those people that like, I think I have 165 credits at undergrad level because I was like, I'm going to study it all. Yeah. Um, I ended up graduating with a degree in social sciences, but I had like three minors because I, I just wanted to learn things and I wanted to get a better context. Without knowing it, I was really engaged in this kind of uh, multi-dimensional studies. So when I went on to my master's degree, which I got a master's in history, I, I actually asked if I joined the program, if they would allow me to continue to work in other disciplines. That was the first thing I asked. <laughs> so I continued to do archaeology and my master's thesis at my college was the first that actually didn't have just history people sitting on it mm -hmm. because I, I did an interdisciplinary study of the Aztecs. 
that continued with me. So I looked for a doctoral program. It happened to be at my same institution. At the time, there were only about four or five in the country interdisciplinary doctoral programs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I decided to stay at my institution, so Florida Atlantic University. And I ended up studying the Maya, but my degree was really interesting because uh, I was allowed to take credits in four different departments. And the focal point of my doctorate was the Maya, but mm -hmm. I took classes that were history, linguistics, archeology, span anthropology. And then my dissertation, I actually had committee members that represented all four of those disciplines. So the reason I came to New York was I was finishing my PhD and I was looking, I was already a professor. So um, I was a department chair in South Florida. I, I can tell you a little bit about that story too, but sure. I, was, I was attracted to, to empire because of its interdisciplinarity. And it, it does not have traditional departments. It has areas of study. And so given my propensity to be everything and like everything, uh, I was really attracted to the school and I wanted to come to Empire because it was allowing that flexibility for me to work across different disciplines, to work with colleagues in different spaces and to work with students who also might wanna work in different spaces. Right. So when we first connected, I, I really, uh, one of the things that I really connected with was the fact that we both love to learn. So, and I kind of had, a, you know, a somewhat similar path, but I, I, I arced through all, I went to Fredonia and I arced through all the majors that they probably had, you know, around the arts and then finally setting, settling into education. And then I never left college, you know, up until, you know, last year, really. Um, I lived on campus for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And my passion was more along the lines of like, you know, helping students get ready to, you know, leave college and be like holistically, you know, trained to leave college and understand what life really is, mm -hmm. uh, in addition to their academic study. So I think we, we're similar in some ways, but definitely different in others. And, and that's great. I love, um, I loved learning about like some of the things you're, you're going to talk about right now in this episode on, on, you know, how you kind of crafted your path. And, you know, I'd love to also touch on some of the things that you had to do a little differently, but not so differently during COVID with mm -hmm. the, you know, the online learning and teaching, uh, which became extremely important to everyone. So why don't we, why don't we dive a little into, you know, your passion and, and talk a little bit about, you know, however this all started. Sure. So I think I'll connect with the idea of the Buffalo Project. So this sure. goes back to even what I was mentioning about my own trajectory. I am a little bit of everything culturally myself. Right. So I'm really interested in that idea of intersectionalities, the way that people are made up of so many interesting things. And I love exploring that in people, whether it be thinking about Buffalo culture, you know, there's a sports culture, there's an academic culture, there's a neighborhood culture, there's a food culture, there's an alcohol culture, there's all these cultures right. and there's music. And the, these intersectionalities make up who people are and their identity. And I think sometimes people don't get to celebrate all of them, right? We get kind mm -hmm. of pigeonholed into focusing on one. So what I did with the Buffalo Project, and I'm gonna bring this back. I was a professor sure. in Florida before I became a professor in New York. And I started the Buffalo Project under a different name there at my college there, where I wanted to explore people's identities and kind of celebrate them in the college environment where I was. It was really successful. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, you know, I'm coming to Empire State College. Let's do this again. Let's figure right. out a way to make this happen. Now, Empire and New York are different. I'm not a New Yorker. I wasn't born or raised here. I had no connections to Buffalo before I came. Right. And so I actually took six months studying the culture of Buffalo when I still lived in Florida. 
-hmm. I joined I joined meetup groups in in Florida to understand what people thought was important in Buffalo, because I was teaching about culture. And in order for me to truly engage with the culture, I needed to understand it. That mm -hmm. that that's kind of an approach from anthropology, and I thought it was really important. This led me to create a course which used to be called U.S. History Through Ethnology. This was basically taking U.S. history, but rather than having it live in a book, it was talking about lived experiences of different cultures. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any exams, but basically what you had to do is you had to go interview people in a neighborhood that weren't your friends or your family. That was what was required. So right. you had a midterm and a final. This became such an engaging project. I'm not joking. It was my most popular class from 2010 to 2012 that I, there was all this data I was collecting about people's perceptions of each other, people's mm -hmm. understandings and not understandings that I said, this is like a project. Yeah. I actually went through a full-blown IRB, Institutional Review Board, and I created a survey that was all of this informal data for two years, and I started spreading it across the entire campus. This has literally grown into today, not only being across Empire State College, but across the SUNY system. I just presented at the UN uh, at the end of last year, talking about elements of the Buffalo Project as it's grown beyond mm -hmm. um, just the system, but now internationally. But it all started with a course that was focused on asking students about how they felt. That has led to so many prongs of mm -hmm. work, uh, whether it be research assistantships where students are developing their own surveys. I just had one that just came out right now that was a student who was interested in netiquette and behaviors online. So I helped them develop right. that survey. Cool. Um, whether it be the development of a journal, uh, Sustainable Progress and Equality Collective, which is the external branch of the Buffalo Project, just produced its first journal called the Journal of Engaged Research, created by students, That's not awesome. created by me. They put the journal together. They created the articles. They were the content editors um, talking about things that were relevant to them. You know, mm -hmm. basically, I say, you tell me what's important to you. Right. So, you know, right now, this journal just came out. You can imagine a lot of this stuff is about online learning you know, DEI, what's happening with, you know, the pandemic, what's happening with kind of racialized disparities. All of this stuff is basically what is their focal point and what mm -hmm. they're interested in. So it's been really interesting to watch. I mean, I would say like it's, I've been a facilitator of collecting things, but really right. it's been community working together to talk about these ideas. And, and and what you're describing, if I'm understanding completely correctly, is that there's just so many things that you, too many, so many directions you could go into, in you know, an un, unlimited theses, you know, of mm -hmm. of looking at you know either you know how one person interacts with another person and um, one culture interacts with another culture, and then it could be and and is totally different from another way that someone from a different background would interact. So. The possibilities are sort of endless, and mm -hmm. and I think that that's great. The other thing uh, is that's absolutely terrific that I love is that you are engaging students to do that work, and it's a teach it's a teaching moment the whole the whole way there. Like they're mm -hmm. learning more about their neighbors, mm -hmm. and learning more about not only um, what people think and what cultures think, but why they think it, and you know bridging that gap in the communication. Um, you know, is the first real step towards true understanding, right? Because mm -hmm. um, part of, I, I, I think anyway, and you can, you're the, more of an expert than I, part of the reason that there are, there's so much conflict, um, even nowadays, is that we just don't understand 
and, and take the time to look from other points of view uh, mm -hmm. of where people are coming from. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the development of intercultural competencies. So I'll, I'll tell you something of a project that I had, and I love creating open resources. I'm not, mm -hmm. I, so uh, I will share with you and your audience uh, a lot of resources that I've created. But in 2017, I developed this Google platformed website for mm -hmm. developing intercultural competencies. And I use it all the time and I share it with people. But one of the first things that we always focus on is reflection. And this is the issue that we have whenever we want to understand somebody else. You can't understand someone else until you understand yourself. Right. Because if you don't understand yourself, you're not going to understand how you're reacting to someone else. You're not going to understand the biases that you hold. You're not going to understand the assumptions that you have. And then you might start projecting things. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the things I always tell students, this is my favorite assignment that I give the very first day of class is, uh, how do you know I'm Dr. Rihanna Rogers? How do you know? Have you looked me up? Mm -hmm. Have you actually checked anything I've done for? That's usually the first assignment I have them do. Investigate me, find out who I am, and then explain to me as the assignment, why am I qualified to teach this course? Mm -hmm. Then I have them do it with textbooks. Go find the author of the textbook or whatever resource we're reading. Read what they write about. Why are they qualified to talk about this subject? That interrogation of questioning and why and reflection, I really put at the forefront of the way that I teach because we don't always do that in society. We don't always, oh, yeah. you know, it's it's really sad to think about this, but it, if you're thinking about like you go to a movie, I know we have it in COVID, but if you go to a movie, you read a review before you go. Mm -hmm. But do you do that before you take a course, before you read a book, before you watch a television program? Right. We turn over that authority of truly understanding our needs many times, which makes it really difficult for us to develop those competencies to interact not only with ourselves and understand ourselves, but then that next level, which is mm -hmm. engaging with someone else. You brought me back to, honestly, in my mind, while you were speaking, I was thinking about a course that I took very early on in my college career in communications, which was like a 101 course. And there was a part of that where every year he picked, the, the professor picked a specific scene in a movie. All right, ours was Nell. And there was a specific scene in that movie where we had to take that scene apart and really uh, explain every part of that 35 seconds of what was the characters were going through, what they meant by what they were saying. And in this particular case, she couldn't speak English. She had her own language. And I go back to this one gentleman that, you know, I don't even remember his name, but I remember his points that he was making. And the professor was saying, no, no, that's not right. Not right at all. You know, like, no, I, you're, you're not getting it. But it doesn't really matter what the detail is. What, what, what I was just getting from what you said is that that student was looking at it from a totally different point of view from the professor. He was looking from a culturally different point of view, an experienced different point of view. And so he was interpreting that scene as he saw it and, and he was right. But also the professor was right but where they were wrong is like in the communication about how they were right, you know? Correct. So, yeah. so if I was teaching that class, I would encourage it. This is actually something I tell students. It doesn't matter what you think it's, can you prove it? Right. If you want to convince me the sky is purple, get some evidence. I would <laughs> love to hear that. I would love to hear that argument. I think, I think one of the things about being really truly an effective professor is under being humble. Like, and this is something I say all the time. I, just as you mentioned earlier, I can learn as much from my students as they can learn from me. 
I build into my courses this idea of mutual reciprocity. And this actually comes from another hat that I've had in my life. Mm -hmm. I used to work in tribal politics uh, in Florida. So I left academia and I worked there for a while. <clears throat> this also connects to the fact that I run the Global Indigenous Knowledge Certificate because I have a lot of connections to indigenous cultures in myself mm -hmm. and with my work. But part of indigenous knowledge say, says this, knowledge is contained by knowledge keepers. It never denotes age, race, you know, language. Mm -hmm. It says knowledge keepers. And so that means that any person has the ability to gain knowledge. You just have to be willing to learn that. Right. That permeates my teaching. I believe that every person comes in with experiences that are different than me and they can enrich the learning environment if they're given voice. Right. It's when we don't give voice and we silence voices that we start to manipulate the learning process. Right. And I think, you know, again, what you bring up, of course, you know, this is very important, um, giving the students a voice. And I've, you know, I've taught in the past, and there's nothing worse than than having a class of silence, right? So getting them engaged and talking about their own experiences and their own point of views, uh, even after someone has shared their view is important. Um, and going back to some of the things that you, you said earlier about how um, interpretation of the facts, right? So this country and the world really is going through um, some big struggles around interpreting what's real, what's fake, what's, you know, what is a fact, right? Because mm -hmm. everything gets twisted in a, in a different way. And, you know, in a lot of, um, in a lot of ways, our young folks are growing up in, in a world where they anticipate or need instant satisfaction, right? Mm -hmm. So they instantly want the knowledge. So giving the advice that you gave just about courses and, and other things, do your research is the most important thing you can do nowadays. Mm -hmm. Where did that fact come from? Where did that person that tweeted or, you know, gave that news item, even the newscasters themselves, where did they get that knowledge and what's their source and, and prove, like you said, prove that it's correct, prove, mm -hmm. prove that that's a fact. Um, and then if like, I just think that's such an important thing for our listeners to, to, to do is that do your due diligence and look into the people that are teaching you and that you're learning from. Yeah. And I would say it goes a little bit further because I'll give you an idea about fact. I actually use the word data more than fact for this mm -hmm. reason. Um, facts, like we are right now on the East Coast and it's a particular time of day right now, but in China, it's a completely different time. Both are facts. Right. Both are facts. That kind of understanding of fact the, that it can be different in different contexts mm -hmm. is why I always kind of focus on data. We have misinformation because people take fact as stagnant, as right. something that is permanent and that everyone believes. I would recommend to your listeners a, a free book that's online called Truth Decay that was created mm -hmm. by the RAND Corporation. They're a think tank, a very large one. It was written by Jennifer Cavanaugh and Michael Rich. But it lays out the last 200 years or so of how we've gotten to this point of misinformation and why, you know, why it exists. And I, I really like this book because number one, it's free and you can download it online. But also they have all this really rich history that pulls together data. It pulls together links to actual sources that you can look at. So it's not just you're taking a word from the authors. You're actually able to go back and interrogate the research yourself. That's something that I think that we need to be pushing more um, within kind of higher education is this critical thinking, self-reflection, and the ability to understand your positionality and, and be humble about it, to know that mm -hmm. 
even if you know a lot of information, you you will never know it all. Right. No, that, that I'm smiling because like, that's exactly what I was trying to get out. <laughs> and I'm like, I knew, she, I knew she would be able to explain it better than, than I might, could get out in my mind. So that's awesome. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about like, you know, how you've, you know, been implementing the Buffalo Project into the community? Um, you said there's like, you know, there's an internal uh, university model, but then there's also an external and how did that kind of really come about and, um, you know, how do you get out there in the community and get, get it to work? Sure. So the Buffalo Project is now 11 years old and uh, Sustainable Progress and Equality Collective, which we call SPEC, is a year old. It just had its year anniversary. <laughs> so uh, for the 11 years, basically, I already worked in the community. And, and I'll just kind of give you a couple of examples. Sure. We have, as I mentioned, a survey and I have kind of focus groups where I'm constantly interrogating my population, the stakeholders. What is it that you want to learn? What is it that you need to know? And I've created different programs through partnerships that I've established. So um, one program that I have is called Virtual Residencies. This is one that was highlighted at the United Nations Geneva Forum. Mm -hmm. But basically what this is, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I have a grant that exists right now uh, with a couple colleagues that's with the US Embassy in the Dominican Republic. And what we've done is we've created a three-week micro-credential uh, the one that we had that was funded was around leadership in times of crisis. So mm -hmm. I, these are like really timely topics. Yeah. And we basically brought together 300 students and 25 faculty for three weeks and three panels that were bilingual in mm -hmm. Spanish and English to talk about comparatively what's going on with leadership in different contexts. So we had five countries represented, but the dominant country was the U.S. and Dominican Republic. This is a perfect example. Like we asked students, what do you want to learn about? How do we have leadership and deal with crises that we're going through right now? So right. I said, okay, let's put all together this network and bring people together. Um, that's one way. So here's something that's really cool is we have students, imagine that are in Buffalo, New York that are talking to students in Prague and they're talking right. to students in Dominican Republic uh, in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And another one is deliberative conversations. So um, this is a really big project that I've been running for a few years as well. But I've partnered with external groups. So not only uh, SUNY schools, even though I partner with a lot of them, but also schools that are in other places. So I actually had, you know, representatives of Arizona State University, Wabash University, the Center for Mass Atrocity Prevention, um, a variety of organizations kind of came together and we created a deliberative conversation, which is, and I'll explain what that means. It's basically, we choose topics that are difficult. And mm -hmm. we put people that are from different perspectives in the room to talk about these topics, not just to have them argue, but to really understand the goal is how do we find and heal? And what mm -hmm. are the steps that we need to take that we can develop policy and write white papers or do some action at the end? And so it's really action oriented kind mm -hmm. of events. So we had two this semester that one was how do we heal a nation? And it focused on how do we bring us back together after what happened on January 6th? Um, I literally went out of my way to work with young Republicans and young Democrats, like, mm -hmm. and I asked them to read my guiding document because the goal is, if you really want to heal the nation, you have to get all perspectives involved. You can't right. choose a side. Mm -hmm. So, and then you bring them all to the table and then you say, okay, there might be differences, but how do we figure out the baseline to make us work together? Yeah. So that's one way. Another one is food. I like food. Yeah. Um, so before it's good, yeah. um, before the shutdown happened, I, I have a partnership with um, 
the West Side Bazaar, which mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't if you haven't gone there, you should. But um, West Side Bazaar came in, and we did a a kind of hybrid activity mm -hmm. where I had uh, students from. Albania, the country of Albania, create a cooking show online. Awesome. I had food from the West Side Bazaar and the executive director was explaining about advocacy and food in Western New York. And then some of the international colleagues were explaining about how food and advocacy relate. And then you had a whole bunch of people watching from around. So it's really hybrid ways that I like to do it. I try to bring broad audiences together. Um, SPEC is doing that even bigger than what the Buffalo Project was doing. Uh, we're now working, um, that organization is not just in New York. I have people that are from all around the country mm -hmm. now trying to figure out partnerships in other states to replicate. Yeah. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I love the the connection to food for, for a variety of reasons. One being that like when you think about when do a lot of discussions happen, it's around a table with food, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's a business meeting or family or, or whatever, um, you know, and, and I feel like, you know, if there could be benefits of COVID, okay, one of the benefits might be that at least the the immediate family was having more time together and revisiting that family time around the table, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I can think of my own personal um, family and, and several other families that I know where, you know, through the daily, you know, speedy, crazy things that we call our lives, we don't always sit down and like have dinner together anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. So I love that approach because you're sort of connecting through food and experiencing new things mm -hmm. at the same time both in conversation and, and hopefully in food, like Westside Bazaar is awesome. Yes. Um, and I never, I, I have to like give kudos to Leadership Buffalo and Althea Larson, who was a former guest on our show. Uh, part of her program is to bring um, everybody, all those leaders through the Westside Bazaar and actually through a variety of different culture and experience different types of food. <laughs> I laughed because uh, they sent me um, to a small um, restaurant that was uh, Polish and I'm Polish. So I'm like, oh, if I could have done anything else, I'm like, <laughs> I, I love the food. It was great, you know, uh, but I would have loved to kind of try something out different. Yeah. Um, but that's such an innovative approach. Well, one of the things before COVID, again, I used to bring every single Buffalo Project RA to a different restaurant in the neighborhood that was required. You yeah. would have to go to a different place and I it would expose you to stuff. So uh, I teach in our international programs. I've lived abroad myself. And one of the things I always do is I, and I will make food from the places that I come from. Mm -hmm. um, so if you were in my house and you would, you would hang out at my house, Anytime I travel abroad, my friends would come over to my house and I would make a dish that I learned abroad from, from that trip. Yep. I've introduced that to my students where That's I'm great. like, here is this food item. Let me explain it to you. Let me explain the cultural context of why it's important. And let's kind of discuss. And it makes them curious. And they're like, oh, I'm going to go find something else. And then they'll teach their family or their friends. So there's a That's lot you can awesome. learn through food. Yeah, I mean, I know of a couple campuses in the, uh, that have the International Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. And, you know, that program kind of started out just as a way to kind of expose students to the American Thanksgiving. But what I liked was like a couple of the colleges I worked at kind of twisted that around and said, you know, everyone brings a dish to pass and they talk about why this dish is important in their family and their traditions. Um, so it's kind of a little bit of what you're, you're saying. Um, uh, but, but I love that, you know, mm -hmm. um, I, I would like to think that I have a pretty, you know, complex palette where I love to enjoy new different types of dishes and 
Um, I'd like to introduce those to, to my family, (laughs) but I, but a lot of times I feel like, you know what, my family is one of those families where the kids (laughs) barely eat the stuff that we, we think they like, you know, one day they like it and one day they don't. Um, so experimenting in that way is not always the best uh, thing in our family, but I try. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think I was exposed to that because my, my dad was an international traveler as a kid and he exposed me to a ton of things. Right. I, I will always remember this time that we were eating Thai food and I thought I was eating a carrot, but it turned out to be like the hottest pepper of my life. I will never forget <laughs> that. So um, I, you know, I, I have, I have to tell you, I'm in a very adventurous eater um, just because uh, in my world of being an archeologist, I've lived abroad doing projects right. in very remote places. So, you know, I, I did a project for a few months in Ecuador in this uh, village called Salango. And, you know, we were commuting into the middle of like the forest and like I had monkey brains. I'm not going to encourage the eating it. It's not, I don't personally like it, but it was interesting. And it was something that, that I explained in my classes, the delicacy of this. And it was like a big deal. So when I explained the cultural context to my students, I'm like, listen, even if you might not like it, this is something about understanding different cultures. I ate a whole bunch of it. (laughs) Like I ate a whole bunch because it was something that they were sharing and it was part of their culture, even if it was something I didn't like, you know, and I said, I, I was really big on making sure that I was very appreciative and I, I expressed to them how much I appreciated them sharing that part of their culture with me. Right. Um, I haven't had it since, yeah. but uh, I will tell you that it's still at one of the most meaningful sharing experiences that I had from a cultural group that had very little and they were offering me all they had. Right. Yeah, that's important to note, like, you know, these things that, you know, you go to a different country, um, try to observe their, their traditions and their culture, because it goes back to what you were saying, research, you know, like, who knows, like, and I don't know that country very well, but if you were to refuse that, would that have been this huge insult where you would have been less welcomed to their community, right? Um, You know, I'm laughing because the other thing that that has happened recently, we had, um, you know, some carpenter ants issue. You know, and I was telling, <laughs> I was telling my kids, I'm like, you know, some cultures eat ants and they're like, gross, you know, like mm-hmm. they were totally grossed out by that. And I'm like, because they were asking me, how can I take care of all these ants by my hand? You know, it's because I'm like, I'm not afraid of bugs for one thing. And also it's just, it's just a different perspective on things. I'm like, now am I going to go cook up some ants for my kids? No, but um, I just want them to be open to the fact that there's protein and and things like in other things that you wouldn't traditionally eat in America, right? Yeah. So, well, I'll give you an example. One of the, my favorite, I lived in Mexico for a long time. So my, my dissertation and my master's thesis are based in Mexico. So uh, I spent the last 15 years going to the Yucatan Peninsula and Merida, which is the capital of the Yucatan state. I go there Mm -hmm. often. One of the biggest delicacies of Mexico is uh, fried insects of various types um they're delicious and i I have to tell you it was an acquired taste this Mm -hmm. is like 15 20 years later when i first had it i was like this is not what i would like to do but imagine after going somewhere it's part of the everyday diet it's part of what all your friends and colleagues are eating it becomes normalized to you right and so like today I, I miss fried crickets. Like I miss them. I can't get fried crickets here. Um, But it's something that like, if you would have talked to me when I was a child, when I didn't have these kind of open-minded cultural experiences where I was able to Mm -hmm. step outside of my own context, you know, I I probably would have missed out on something that was 
really interesting and yeah. I like now. Yeah, and, and you know, and it's important also to note that like our cultures have grown up. I've grown up in a certain situation where this is normal and that's not normal, you know? Mm -hmm. And again, to kind of do your, your research and learn about the culture, you know, because to them, it's not crazy, but a lot of the things that you do are crazy. Mm -hmm. So again, going back to like the Buffalo Project and what you're doing, I, I love that those gaps are sort of being bridged and that you're including our young minds, right? Because mm -hmm. they're gonna learn by, um, by doing, right? Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, they're also going to start spreading that learning to other people to kind of say, hey, you need to look at this from, you know, um, the Vietnamese perspective, because this mm -hmm. is what they believe, or the French perspective, because this is where they're coming from. Um, so where do you see this project going? I know, like the, the public facing project part is, is still relatively new. Um, what are your hopes and, and, and dreams for that in the next five years? And, and how can some of our listeners and viewers help? So, uh, you know, this sounds cheesy and I say this to everybody. I want to make the world a better place. That is my goal. I won't mm -hmm. stop until I actually can do that. That's really what I want to do. So my hope with, the, with SPEC is that we continue to create a pipeline for bringing up critical thinkers that will be change agents, whatever that means to them. Again, I am not a person who likes to dictate what that change will be, or even the path that somebody is going. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think for me, that would be that. I want people that come out of this experience and working with SPEC to be able to help their communities, to be able to share the insights that they learn in the organization. So the way that viewers and listeners can, can contribute, sharing with me information about people who could be research associates, people mm -hmm. who want to be going through this program. I mean, as it stands right now, we have different ways of engaging in the research associate position. You can get college credit through Empire State College. Um, there are a few paid internships. There are a few unpaid internships and it's open to everyone. And what I mean by open to everyone is the youngest person that we have that's been affiliated is in high school. The oldest person we have that's affiliated is 65 going through the RA ship. It's not about age, as I mentioned earlier. It's about understanding and wanting to make a change to help others around you. And you can do that at any age. You can do that at any walk of life. So well, I would say- to the project too, right? Like the difference in age, the difference in perspective is just one more like variable to study, right? Yeah, well, think about this. Most internships focus on like traditional college age students. Mm -hmm. I actually brought this up because I ran, I ran an internship with the Rockefeller Institute of Government and I opened the internship up to different age groups. And I said, think about this. When students are graduating from college, they're not gonna join a company that is 25 to 26 years old and that's the only people in the company. They're gonna join a company that is a variety of ages how are they going to learn how to navigate that if they've mm -hmm. never been exposed to working with people from different age groups? How? Yeah. If you're not providing that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, and I said, yeah. So that's one of the reasons I, I really like this is that you will work with people from different generations. You will work with people from different cultures. And the more you can learn about that in a safe space yeah. where it's not high stakes, right? Where you get fired or something like that <laughs> for making a mistake. I think it's a really great opportunity because you can learn. Yeah, I mean, every you know, every person has something to contribute, and I and I, and I love the openness. And um, you know, we talk about uh, you know adult learning uh, in society and how hard it is to go back. But if you had more opportunities to do more hands-on, you know, hol holistic learning, 
uh, and internships, um, I think that you'd have more people willing to do it. You know, you're sort of doing that work anyway when you volunteer for different organizations, but it's not that far of a of a you know of a of a stone's throw to um, offer internships at a company, you know, because um, you're getting more, you know, knowledge from the older um, people as far as like their life experiences. But then the same thing with the, the younger kids. I love that there's a high school student involved. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. he actually wrote an article inside of the Journal of Engaged Research. So, Very nice. Yeah, well, we'll have to make sure we put the link for that also on our um, show notes. And, um, you know, that was a part of the show. I just want to make sure that I've caught everything that you wanted to share with the audience. Because um, I, I have a feeling like you're, you're the type of guest that I could bring back like, you know, five or six times and we'd still have a million things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there anything that you definitely want to get it across to our that's, that sounds terrific audience that we haven't touched on? Yeah, I think just for everybody out there, my hope would be, you know, be curious. You know, it's it's something that's important about where we are as society and cultures. You know, some things can be uncomfortable, but if you pause and you reflect on what things you like, you can put yourself in a position to think that somebody might like something equally as much as you do on the opposite side of the coin. And if you remember that, if you remember that, it'll make you think about questioning, you know, what do you like? And asking more questions than making assumptions. If we do that, if Mm -hmm. we start asking each other questions, we can start to learn about each other and we can start working together to make, you know, the future brighter for everyone. That's terrific advice. And honestly, you know, if you opened my mind to a a bunch of different things, even for the second time talking to you, um, and I'm hoping we're going to stay in touch and so I can continue to learn more. And um, I, I think that all of our listeners and viewers should take that advice, you know, stay open um, and really then learn from each other, but learn about yourself. That was another important point that I want to hammer home is that you have to, know, again, what you said, you have to know yourself in order to be able to learn and know others. So mm-hmm. um, Dr. Rogers, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, I really appreciate it. And we will be sure to put all your contact information in our show notes and follow you on everywhere we can, right? Um, So thank you again, Dr. Rogers. Yes, it was a pleasure being here and thank you. Thank you for joining us in another episode of That Sounds Terrific. Don't forget to check out the show notes and our website at thatsoundsterrific.com to find the contact information and the best ways to volunteer with the organizations that we feature. If you know someone that is doing terrific things and think they should be featured in a future episode, be sure to email us their name, contact info, and short description of what they're doing at thatsoundsterrific at gmail.com. If you like our show, give us a five-star rating and give us some social media love by liking our Facebook page, That Sounds Terrific. Follow us on Twitter at Sounds Terrific 2 and Instagram at Sounds Terrific. We love hearing your feedback on how to make our show sound even more terrific. Till next time.